0: we've been going through John mainly on this year on the Passover and the things that occurred there and and what Christ went through and so on I want to go back to Luke for just a little bit here Uh, pick up a couple of things Looking a little earlier, this I think it's in John, and my eye wouldn't fall on it, where it says, "You are clean, except uh, the one that betrayed him." Uh, you remember that? It it may be in Matthew or or Mark. I'm not sure. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's just a matter of him addressing them <clears throat> and telling them because of the Passover they'd been through and what he had was about to do that they would all be clean through the Holy Spirit. Now that means the consequence or the actually the penalty of sin would be erased by his death and his blood spilled. I think we've talked recently, though, about <clears throat> the consequences of sin don't always go away, at least in our human lives. The eternal penalty he removes so that we can have eternal life and not have to die eternally. We're all going to die once, physically, whether he considers dying in dirt sleep or whether that means uh, when you're changed, the old body dies. Whether whether it slips back or whether it disappears as you're made uh, spirit, it doesn't say, and it doesn't matter. That's a technicality. But nonetheless, the Penalty for our sin, death, eternally, is removed. Now, we put sin out, as we've been working on during this time. Uh, He forgives them, so that we should be sitting here clean today. And they were, and yet they were still human. I want to point that out here in Luke 22, verse 19 He says, And he took bread, and gave thanks, and broke it, and said, This is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood, which is shed for you. So the symbols of the New Testament are laid out very clearly here, not animal sacrifices as, as in the old, but Him. And truly the Son of Man goes, as it was determined, but woe to you, uh, that man by whom he be betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves then, which of them it was that should do this thing. Uh, In Matthew, I mean in John, where we read, it also mentions this in passing, that they had a controversy wondering who was going to be, and then Peter told John, hey, ask him who is it and there he said the one i give the sop to and he took the sop and gave it to judas and told him do quickly what he had to go do but here it adds a little bit there was also a strife among them not just a question but a strife which of them should be accounted the greatest now, that's an interesting thing to have right here christ is humbling himself before God, before them, before all mankind ultimately, and about to die. And he's told them he is going to, but they have not yet accepted that. And though they had just taken the bread and the wine, that human carnality was still there. And here they were to be humbled by foot washing. They had the bread, the wine, foot washing, and then began this talk. Luke doesn't give as many details as John did. Is the reason I went to Luke, but uh, Luke did not mention this particular one. That there's also a fight about who was the greatest. Now, in a setting where the greatest humility ever was needed, they weren't being very humble. I think I'm a little better than you are, you know. Uh, who Who's the greatest here? Well, Christ was obviously the greatest. He was the most humble. But they weren't arguing about him. They were arguing about them. Which one of us is the greatest? And that is just a human thing that we face as children, little kids running around, They're always out trying to figure out the pecking order, who's the best, who's the greatest, who's the smartest, who's the whatever, who's the best ball player, you name it as we get a little older and a little older. But competition is the way of the world, and it's the way of Satan. He put himself in competition with God and said, I am the greatest. We had Muhammad Ali here who... Made no bones about it, the boxer, some years back. I am the greatest, he would say. <laughs> and he would go on and on and on as to why he was the greatest. And he made a lot of money doing that. Uh, not be- well, he made money because of his box. He was a good boxer. He wasn't necessarily the best ever, <clears throat> but he was good. But he made an awful lot of money with his mouth instead of his fists and uh, trying to put down all competition that way. So we see that happening. And he goes on down and explains something to to them. He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but you shall not be so. But he that is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that does serve. Elders don't need to be putting themselves above the younger and saying, hey, I'm more important than you are. And those who are in control or chief or in positions need to serve just like anybody else and set that example in any way they can. In other words, you're all here to treat each other as brothers and sisters, none better than others. Uh, But they hadn't got that. They weren't fully converted. In fact, they weren't converted, as he points out here in just a minute. For who is greater, he that sits at meat or he that serves? It's not he that sits at meat, but I am among you as he that serves. Uh, Remember yesterday, he had breakfast ready for them when they came off the boat. So he was there to serve and help them. He was greater by far. He's greater by far today. But he still has an attitude of service toward us. He is living what he says here needs to be done. Uh, He's there not to be treated as a servant if you will but to be asked to be uh, petitioned were the things that we might need and he is there to serve us kings? No they're there to serve themselves they're there to keep their kingdom together they're there to remove the heads of anyone who gets in their way kind of like the U.S. government these days and uh They exercise lordship over people. Christ does not do that. He is our Lord. And he only uses that office for that when he has to. Uh, You and I, if we are serving him, loving him, praying to him, and praying for each other, he doesn't need to exercise lordship over us. We're not in rebellion. We're not hurting anybody. We're not doing anything wrong. So why would he come around and say, well, you know who I am? Uh, No, he doesn't need to do that with us because we are submitted to him, and we are submitted to each other. He tells us that we should all submit one to another. Uh, So you think you're right and somebody else is wrong. Why do you need to make a big deal out of it? We tend to do that. Well, I'm right and he's wrong. No, we don't need to do that. Just do things right. If there's some disagreement over it, uh, be willing to back down and say, okay, we'll do it your way. Uh, That is a better form of management and getting along with people. You know, if they have a job that's been assigned You could have put four different people in that job, and it would have probably been done four different ways because everybody thinks a little different than somebody else. So, what's the problem? Whoever you've said do it, let them go do it. You don't have to micromanage it and tell them everything they have to do, and it has to be done just your way. There are a lot of foremen and people in business who are not liked by employees because you got to do everything just so I don't think that way is is a human basically uh, sometimes sure but to me there's a job I want done have somebody do it all right it needs done you go do it And I'm basically done then. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to go over there and say, How are you doing that now? How are you doing that? No, just let them go do it. And it doesn't matter who you sent. It'll get done a different way. As long as it gets done and the product is right is all that matters. Which end of the hole you use doesn't matter. The guy that uses a sharp end will probably be done quicker. But if he wants to use the blunt end, okay, and you can go by and check on him every few days and see how he's coming (laughs) along. But it doesn't matter, really, in that sense, the method. It's, can a job get done? Instead of saying, how do we get this job done, and then conferring among themselves what's the most efficient way, nothing wrong with that, and then deciding, well, yeah, that does sound like a good idea, let's do it that way. We don't need to all insist, we do it our way. Because our way is the best way, of course, and the spirit of competition gets in the way. These guys argued not only about who was the greatest, but in another place it says they were arguing about who would sit on Christ's right hand and left hand. As if they had anything to do with that. And he told them... that's my responsibility you, you don't have to worry about that I think we should be more concerned or we're going to get that 144,000 chair than which side of who gets to sit between the father and the son <laughs> you know, that uh, that just doesn't work I got a page blown back Who is greater, Served to the serve, or the uh, server? And he told them, I'm, you're no longer my servants, you're my friends. So he removed it from the servant class. We're all his friends and need to be, treat each other as friends and as his friends. It's what we need to be doing so that we all get along as friends and brothers Maybe I shouldn't say his brothers. Brothers aren't always a good example of, of that kind of uh, cooperation, but they should be. You are those who have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint to you a kingdom, as my Father has appointed to me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he's already told us we'll be kings and priests. Um, How high on the totem pole? Well, there won't be a totem pole. He'll just tell us where we are, and then we fulfill that. And the Eternal said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Now, he knew that he was going to betray him three times and then the rooster would crow. And then here he says something, he says it a little differently. Maybe he said both things, both ways. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. So, that's interesting, isn't it? Peter was a friend. Peter was under him. Yet he was praying to the Father for Peter, and he was God Himself. Christ prays for us. We are told all the time pray to Him, pray for each other. But how often has it been said that He prays for us? I don't know that I ever really focused on that, but that's what it says. And when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. So even they were there, and they were pronounced clean as a result of the Passover. Uh, They weren't yet converted. And they were reacting still very carnally with this competition thing. And then running from Christ when he was going through what he was going through or standing way back because they didn't want to be associated and and killed with him and uh you know that what goes around comes around everyone but john wound up being crucified the same way he was and some of them upside down even Uh, so he was going to be converted and he said to strengthen the brethren Uh, whether he said it in exactly those words or whether it was like john recorded it uh, feed my sheep or maybe he said it both ways, and Luke wrote it one way, and, or that part, and John wrote the other part. Because there were a lot of things he said and did, as John said, that there wasn't room to write. So uh, this isn't a contradiction. He may have said more, and some of them picked up on it and wrote it, and somebody else picked up on it and wrote something a little different of what he said, just like you could all be taking notes about what I say, and they'd be totally different. Each one of you would write down something different. Might have said all of them, but something clicked in your mind and you wrote that. Something clicked in somebody else's differently and they wrote that. And most of it wouldn't be direct quotes. But God saw to it that they remembered enough of what they heard that it could be recorded as truth and then put all four together that we might get a more complete story. That's what it amounts to. But I wanted to zero in on that fact that he pronounced them clean wherever whichever book it's in here after having taken the passover and here we are seeking to put sin out of our lives but we've been put in the clean position or righteous position if you will righteousness is without sin so if you have had your sin cleared by his blood then you are righteous until you mess that up again, which we're prone to do. But let's go to Haggai and see that one of the key factors here is this issue of cleanliness or cleanliness. Here he's having the uh, remnant come together. And he's saying that the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former in uh, verse 9 of chapter 2. And this is on the 24th day of the ninth month. And then God has something to say here. So far he's been describing events and people coming and willing to work and all that. But then he has something to say about righteousness. Right in the middle of this book and not much is said here except this because it's something that's very, very important and needed to be included. Verse 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. You could you could have something that was holy, and if it touched something, would it make what it touched holy? No. God's words can touch you or me. Do they make us holy? No. What makes us holy is following them, doing them, and then we can become holy because we are doing the right thing without doing the wrong things. Very important issue. The priest answered and said, No, you don't make things holy by putting them with something that is unholy. So he said that then. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body, uh, if you touch the dead body, you are ceremonially unclean till sundown. So that's what he's talking about here. If he touch any of these, shall it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. So coming in contact with something holy to something else doesn't make it holy. But if you get with the unclean, it makes whatever the unclean touches unclean. So we could use this in relationship to the world, where Paul instructs us over and over don't get with the unclean don't get with the world he who has fellowship with the world does not have fellowship with me so we are to be with the clean we are not to be down there with those people today uh, keeping Easter and eating funny colored eggs Uh, we're to be here with God's people talking about God's word six day of unleavened bread instead of Easter (laughs) Uh, this is what we need to be in touch with, instead of that. And he tells us, "Come out from the world, be you separate from her." Uh, Revelation eighteen two. Don't have anything to do with the world, because the, your their sin will rub off on you, and you will be a partaker of their plague their sins and their plagues. So, being with the world and being part of the world makes us unclean. It rubs off. (laughs) Have you noticed that if you're doing good it doesn't rub off on people too much by nature. But if people are doing evil and you get around them how quick does that rub off? You know I can think back years ago when I might be in a a bar. Many years ago. And uh, they're telling ribald jokes and making all kinds of comments that are ungodly and you know how quick it is and how easy it is to fall into that kind of uh, atmosphere they tell a joke oh i know one you can just you can be in there in seconds just like that if you're in the wrong circumstance doesn't take long But if you go in the bar and try to be clean and not say anything bad and not talk down about anybody or tell dirty jokes, how quickly does that rub off on the other people in the bar? It won't rub off at all. You'll be all by yourself sitting there nursing your drink. That's the way things work with human nature and godly things. It's just that way. Now let's go back to Isaiah. 51, here he tells us in the beginning of this to wake up and put on God's strength, verse 9, and even above that, and not let the world walk all over us. We are to equip ourselves as men. Uh, like he told Joshua, beginning of going into the promised land, be strong, be of good courage, be all these things, like the kid sang to us the other day. Uh, we are to be that. We're not to be walked on by the world. And he says that up here. Uh, oh, it's in 52 is where he says that. It says again, wake up, put on your strength. In your beautiful garments of righteousness instead of uncleanness. He's leading up to uh, what Haggai was talking about in the gathering coming out from the world. And he's saying, wake up, uh, shake yourself from the dust, verse 2, arise, sit up, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. What have we been captive of? Satan's world and Satan's way. Um, for thus says the eternal, you have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. <coughs> Christ's sacrifice, his blood was free. You didn't have to come and pay money before coming into the Passover service. <coughs> the, the, the smoking I'm doing is getting to me where does he say well shake yourself loose from the dust and sit up (coughs) don't be walked on the world will walk all over us (coughs) then he goes into a message down here about how beautiful are the feet of those or him, that will publish peace and encourage strength, that God reigns, that we don't have to worry about anything because there is a supreme being who can take care of everything that we need taken care of, and that the watchman will lift up the voice, together shall they sing when they shall see eye to eye when the eternal shall turn around or bring back or begin to bless Zion again. That's when the two witnesses will come together and speak the same thing. And that's when, when he begins to bless (coughs) again. That's why Zechariah 3 talks about the signs and wonders that will reveal the righteous branch of God. It'll be when those signs and wonders and miracles start. So in verse 9 then, after saying that, he says, Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Eternal has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem, which is going to happen, and it is going to be a very joyful thing when signs and wonders happen. Verse 10, The Lord has made bare his holy arm, and the eyes of all the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Uh, when this is all done the whole world will have seen what God is and what he's doing now what does he say then depart you depart you get you out from there touch no unclean thing Uh, Haggai we just read says that don't touch the unclean it'll make you unclean I mean yeah and they were clean under the blood of Christ after the Passover we just had quoted Revelation 18 come out from her my people that you don't be a partaker of her sins and her plagues Micah 4 says get out of the city and go dwell in the wilderness and there you'll be delivered so we're to get away from Satan's unclean world his way of thinking and here he's talking about the same thing go out of the midst of her Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Understand that he is going to use his remnant as an example of how he is. Our example is a light on a hill is supposed to show the world what life and righteousness is all about. So we can't be thinking like and acting like the world. We have to be the part and If we're to bear his vessels, then we have to be clean. That's all there is to it. He can't have the unclean doing uh, temple work, work on the temple, part of his church, the spiritual temple, if they're unclean. And he's talking about that particular flight to the wilderness. He says, For you shall not go with haste, nor go by flight, for the Eternal will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And then he starts talking about uh, Christ and also the type of Christ who will be Zerubbabel. And in that context, we read Isaiah 53 of all the things he went through at the Passover. So this is talking, this inset, about the time of the Passover. And then chapter 54 starts talking about more people coming and expanding the tents and having more room because there's a lot of people coming. This has always made me feel that it would be around Passover time that these things happened, as well as Joel 2 about the first month and so on. That's always been my favorite of the options that the Bible seems to give, like the 9th and 24th and the first week of January where he's done some things. But I always kind of come back to Isaiah 2 and here. Uh, as being the time of the Passover when we're the cleanest, (laughs) when we've just gone through it, when we're working at putting sin out of our lives and it seems to fit, that that would come together. Now, I have a question for you. I wanted to make this short, but I want you to ponder something and I want you to have an answer by tomorrow. When I say Passover... Days of unleavened bread, certain things come to your mind, don't they? Christ's sacrifice, uh, leaving Egypt, uh, unleavened bread. there's types and symbols there that you immediately equate to Christ being the Passover, which we just went through. So certain things come to mind when I say Passover. When I say Pentecost, we think of the first fruits, we think of uh, being engaged to Christ. We think of various things uh, because there are quite a few types there that are easy to bring forward. Uh, We talk about Feast of Trumpets. Well, We think of the seventh trump and Christ returning and the change that would come. Uh, Atonement, not eating, (laughs) comes up. But why? Uh, The marriage of the Lamb, uh, putting Satan away, There are a lot of things that could come to mind as types that are valid today of things that have occurred, like Christ's Passover 2,000 years ago, and some of these things that were still in the future, part of it's finished, his part, of dying and coming back. So that isn't uh, a symbol for the future, it's a fact of history that we rehearse every year because it's a continuing sacrifice. If I say Feast of Tabernacles, you think of the millennium, you think of certain things that are, that those Old Testament holy days were a type of something in the future. Last great day, all those people that lived and never had a chance at salvation, whether they were abortions or died right away, or got old and never knew the truth, whatever. Those things come to mind. I skipped one, didn't I? Did I skip one? The last day of Unleavened Bread, which comes tonight, tomorrow, is a holy day, a holy convocation, and a feast. Have you ever heard a sermon telling you the typology for that in the end time? I just rehearsed the other six, and you you all had thoughts, and I brought a few up that coincided with your thoughts. And maybe you thought of a few more I didn't even mention. But would somebody please explain to me the typology for the end time of the seventh day of Unleavened Bread? Here's the mic. You've never heard a sermon on it. Have you? I haven't. I've never given one on it. Well, we've we've always referred to the the big happening on the day was the Red Sea. I mean, we we might think of that. Tomorrow we'd think, well, it was the Red Sea, and I might even refer to it in a sermon and say, well, this was a day of the Red Sea. And it was a big it was a big deal, wasn't it? Seventh day of unleavened, that was a big deal. The wind blows, the sea parts, you walk through, Pharaoh's army gets drowned. and. Uh, pretty big day in israel's history but what was it what does it mean for the end times big day tune in tomorrow we'll talk about it if you haven't figured it out by then